Did you know that literature can bring us closer to God, even when it's neither overtly nor intentionally Christian? Today's guest, Dr. Henry Russell, will share some fascinating insights on a typological approach to literature. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Hi, I'm Lisa Maladnik, and we're talking today about a typological approach to literature with one of my most eminent colleagues at Homeschool Connections, Dr. Henry Russell. A graduate of Princeton and South Carolina, Dr. Russell completed his graduate work at Louisiana State University. Formerly the chairman of Ave Maria College's Department of Literature, he has also been a professor at Franciscan University of Steubenville and Wake Forest University. He is a founding faculty member of the St. Robert Southwell Creative Writing Workshop held in Mawa, New Jersey. Dr. Russell is headmaster of the St. Augustine's Homeschool Enrichment Program, which he founded with his wife, Crystal. The program began in fall 2005 with 20 students in two living rooms and now tutors more than 140 students in three locations. Dr. Russell's works include the Catholic Shakespeare audio series. He was the associate editor of The Formalist from 1990 to 2004, and his writings have been published in various journals. He was honored to edit Dr. Alice von Hildebrand's groundbreaking volume, The Privilege of Being a Woman, and I started to stumble on that because I just want to say how much I love this book. Again, that's <laughs> Alice von Hildebrand's book, The Privilege of Being a Woman, an absolutely beautiful book that uh, Dr. Russell edited. How fantastic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Russell. Thank you, Lisa. It's great to be here. Oh, thank you. This is such an interesting subject, typology. Could you step us into just a basic understanding of what we mean by that term? Well, it's a little tricky, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the, the easiest way to think about it, although it certainly won't be complete, will be to detect the presence of especially biblical and Christian reference throughout most of the canon of Western literature. But it's, it's a lot more than that. And that's where it becomes so fascinating. Because, first of all, it's not an academic invention. Now, probably most of our listeners are used to thinking of it in terms of what biblical scholars do, right? They, they look at Moses leading the people out of Israel. And the Jews knew that this was a, a, a prefiguration of something greater to come, uh, of the Messiah. And, of course, when Jesus comes, he, he is like Moses, leading us out of the wilderness of sin uh, into the possibility of, of heavenly life. And so people think, well, okay, so it's, it's a... It's a, a theological study device. And then, well, the people in literature picked up on that because it's so wise and good, and, and it is. But it's more than that. It, it really is the way that God has created us um, so that we live in his image and likeness. We are made to be imitations of Christ. 
uh, who has given us the most uh, immediate sense of, of God's being, because as he came to us as man and God, we could see that more readily. So our whole life on one level, contrary to the modern conception that you just have to be you and don't imitate anybody else and don't dream of listening to anybody else's ideas. <laughs> no, we, we are made as imitations. We are made as imitations of the divine trinity. Now, that's a lot to imitate, right? It's because once in there, you, you're into the totality of being. So when, you know, when Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, uh, he's, he's, he's quite serious. He wants us to be like him, part of him in some mystic and wonderful way. So life is about imitation. So typology is about how mankind imitates his creator whether he likes it or not, whether he knows it or not, whether he's even ever properly heard of his creator or not. Now, one can resist imitating Christ. Uh, you know, we have a natural law within us that helps us to do this. And the more we listen to Holy Mother Church, the more understanding we develop about how to do that. Some people who live elsewhere um, need to work more from the natural law within them and uh, from whatever revelations God may have given to their people. But the less you know, uh, the harder it is. And of course, thanks to Satan, we are always being prompted not to imitate Christ, but to imitate you know, the great refuser. So it this becomes a very broad field then. Now, when we talk about literature, uh, you know, you can, for a Christian author who's fully aware of this tradition, um, he, can, he can enjoy himself like Dante. He can, he can thoroughly work with all the different levels of typology and show us as we try to imitate Christ as we succeed, as we fail utterly and make ourselves fit for hell. Um, and then there are others like Shakespeare or the author of Beowulf or even Nathaniel Hawthorne, who to a greater or lesser degree participate in this great tradition. But if you're writing as a Buddhist or as a Muslim or uh, even as an atheist, you nevertheless live as an image of God. So this will come out in you. So when you read something like Homer's Magnificent Iliad or Odyssey, you see these wonderful virtues coming out in the characters that we as Christians can learn a lot from. And among those virtues is taking God very seriously. Uh, Homer is, is a magnificently theological author. Uh, it's a shame that his, his God was not equal, if you will, <laughs> uh, to his genius. But this is what it means not to have been given the revelation directly. But he achieves so much that can teach us. 
anyway, this this is why I feel completely free to apply typology to literatures that have never that had never had the the wonderful fortune to be brought into context contact with the gospel. There, it gives one hope, doesn't it, Dr. Russell? Because there's something in all of us innately that recognize certain virtues and themes, and as you said, we can resist. But it's just such an acknowledgement that we're a human family. That's right. We are much more deeply connected than we like to. We have liked to talk about for about since about 1650. You know, <laughs> the the sort of pathetic image of each person as his own island, accumulating his own knowledge and building his own moral system that Hobbes launched, unfortunately, has gotten wildly popular over the centuries. But it's a lie and it's a mistake. And if you live there, you will, you know, you'll end up in despair. Whereas the human community awaits you. And that is based not on our decisions, but on God and his, his laws for us. Mm, wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful that what you're saying about the way God creates us. And um, you step us also into how we're some of the common typology that we see. You mentioned Moses. Um, what about in popular literature? Like a lot of Catholic homeschoolers read C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, and a lot is said about that particular typology. What else comes Absolutely. up? Absolutely. Lewis is a. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> yeah, Lewis is a marvelous typologist, and and that's that is so largely because he was a medievalist, which was the era in which typology was most openly and complexly and beautifully used, uh, and he sort of decided to restore a good bit of it. Um, I mean, everyone has heard about. God or Christ being referred to as the Lion of Judah. Well, Lewis says, okay, let's bring the Lion of Judah on stage here. And we'll call him Aslan. And he'll be a marvelous image, right? We need images. We, our imagination must seize the things of God. It's not enough to just intellectually know it. Um, it's not enough even to know it by faith. There, there has to be this contact of love. And you cannot love what you cannot see or, or feel. And, of course, we have to do that largely by imagination. I mean, obviously, St. Peter didn't have to. <laughs> right. he, right? he, but we do. Um, so our imagination is crucial, and we need to develop it with things which are clean and wholesome and, and beautiful and true, uh, lest it become uh, a nightmare, a uh, playground for the devil. It's a very serious thing. It's, it's not just you know, a playground for each individual person. It is a road to God, uh, just as real, just as potent in its own way as the intellect. And it can help purify the emotions. We need to purify our emotions because they can so easily, you know, go toward the wrong. 
But let's, so, you know, Lewis picks up on a very popular typology of, of Jesus as the Lamb of God and uses it. Now, by the way, funny thing, of course, the lion is also a symbol of the devil. For the devil goes about like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may destroy. So typology is a little tricky. It's not like a, a computer that's either a one or a zero, right? It's not either or. You have to look at the context. And of course, in Lewis's context, the lion is always and, and you know, therefore properly to be interpreted as a sign of uh, the being of God. Although people do fear him and, and do fear that he may mean them harm at first. It's like you, you sort of get that duality in their uncertainty. You're right. It, that first of all, you begin with a duality. And, and then within it helps you realize that God is far more than just the lamb. Lambs aren't by their nature particularly frightening. Um, lions are. And God ought to be frightening on, on many different levels, uh, or else you're just not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> so you, but, but it's a fright that is combined with justice and a, and, and a sense that he really wants the very best from you and that he does not wish to unleash uh, his anger on you. But if you're, if you're that obdurate, and most of us are, uh, you know, occasionally we will feel the wrath of God in our own lives. So, you know, it's a, it's a brilliant and beautiful image, and, and Lewis does a fine, fine job with, with bringing it along. Um, but as I mentioned, the Lamb of God, everyone's familiar with the Lamb of God. Well, that's a typological image. We don't want to imagine our Lord, you know, bleating or, or being silly like a sheep. If you've ever raised sheep, they're, they're awfully cute, but they're brainless. <laughs> um, and, and, and that leads us to one, another of the uh, principles of typology, that you can't swallow the literal level whole and expect to do very well. Um, there's no demand that our Lord resemble a sheep in every single way anymore, because that would be there would be something uh, untoward and, and undignified uh, about that. That when we think of that, we're thinking of his innocence and of his allowing himself to be helpless uh, and allowing himself to be to be slaughtered for us uh, and the utter purity that goes along with the concept of the, of, the, of the sheep. And just in a similar way, since you and I are both images of God, we are both types of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't do a very good job with that at all. <laughs> so when somebody looks at me, you know, they could easily say, how, I mean, what on earth are you talking about? You're a sinful idiot. How can you <laughs> proclaim to be a type of Christ? Well, I didn't ask for it. <laughs> right? It was given to me. And I have to just do the best job I can with it. And, and so in literature, uh, people who expect every detail of the type to resemble that to which it is referring, they're just, they're silly. I mean, you, you wouldn't really want in literature, Aragorn, for example, 
And so, and, and Frodo and Gandalf in Tolkien are types of Christ, each one in their own way, sacrificing themselves uh, for the good of others. Um, each one of them actually coming back from the dead in a very serious sense during the course of the novels. But you wouldn't want one of them to be literally crucified and to literally rise upon the third day and literally to be uh, the son of God, uh, because that would be blasphemy. Uh, you, you would move at that point into having two saviors, which is, is simply self-contradictory and blasphemous. So you're always going to see lots of differences and you can always go, you know, play the game of, oh, he can't be a type of Christ. He's He's small and foolish, and he doesn't have any serious long-term power. But these, these differences between, there's a technical term we use. It's, it's the antitype. Jesus is, oddly enough, the antitype. That means he is before all types, before all imitators. So the antitype is that which is the perfection of the thing. Uh, that which all other things like it imitate. It's kind of a goofy word because we think of anti as against usually. Right. Um, but that's not how it works. There's a million types, but there's only one antitype. And, and in essence, that is uh, Jesus and the divine trinity. Yeah, it really struck me when you were talking about how the image of Frodo or the lamb or the lion, it's, uh, it, to me, I'm getting this sense of it's a flicker of, of God, a, a flicker of something, a truth about God. And the rest of it is in a, an imaginative context. And, in this, and not in the same way, because when we sense God's presence in the beauty of the natural world, whether it's a lamb or a, or a sunrise, we're really getting a quite glorious glimpse of his presence in the natural world, but he is present through us too. And it's only by his grace that people are getting any glimmers of his presence in us. As you said, we can feel like kind of foolish, sinful idiots. And, and, and it was kind of thrust upon us to be made in God's image. But, but I feel like those two, I think feel like that's why it comes through literature and art and all these expressions of our souls creatively that we get these flickers and images of God. Right. And that's honestly, that is really the purpose of art, uh, to teach and to delight. We're supposed to be delighted. Uh, it's, it's not a lecture. It's, it's not, you know, a theology class. It's, it's an enjoyable story which incarnates the truth that we live among. Right. And it can, it can incarnate it at a very high level, you know, the high heroic uh, a very intense level, uh, like Shakespeare's characters, good and evil, uh, or, or on a humble level and a simple level, uh, like some of Charles Dickens's characters who, who try to live out uh, good moral actions. And, and although Dickens, you know, shies away so sadly from the use of the word Jesus, um, you know, at least he, he wants us to continue imitating some of the virtues of Jesus. And, uh, you know, anybody can do this. Anybody can be for us a, uh, a type that leads us toward 
the, the ultimate. Um, the saints of, above all, of course, are types who have achieved more in the way of imitating Christ than most of us have. But a thoroughly sinful person can en engage in this too. And, you know, thank God. And that may be part of, the, uh, part of the root of their salvation. You mentioned something fascinating, and, and it, it opens up a whole other area, which is that our ancestors looked at the world, and, and I think you know this, as the first book of God. Creation itself told us most of what we, much of what we need to know about what God is like. You know, he's, he's infinitely beautiful. There is infinite variety. Uh, he delights in, in, in the comic uh, as well as the noble. Um, you know, we could go on all day with this. And, you know, especially when you start thinking about uh, seas and sunsets and mountains and how much they say to us and our souls. And our ancestors uh, used to actually have books that would explain uh, in what way various animals are symbolic, especially of the Christian life. Um, or they would, oh yes, St. Augustine goes into this to some degree in On Christian Doctrine. Huh. Then they also had books about plants and how they become emblematic uh, of truths about God and, and the faith. And they, of course, they work with stones as well, especially launching off of the 12 stones on the ephod of the high priest uh, in, in temple worship. So for them, every single thing was speaking of the glory of God. And they wanted to explore and talk about how it did. They, they knew that it did, but they weren't content with that. They wanted to develop a language of, of how it did and, 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 uh, and what it looks like. So that if you go into a church, perhaps in your church, you'll see on one of the stained glass windows, a couple of, um, a couple of beehives. And you go, beehive. Well, beehives in the church. <laughs> anyway, of course, it's a symbol of the Christian life, the Christian community, where each person plays their part. Uh, and, you know, the, the riches of the community are, are poured forth for all. But there's certainly, you know, a rigid distinction of roles in the beehive. So we go on and we could go on all day with this stuff. It's, I, I just love it. The church has a very broad and deep language of typology, most of which, quite frankly, we don't talk about too much nowadays. Um, you know, everybody knows the Lamb of God. Everybody knows the Lion of Judah. They may know if they've, you know, done the litany of Loretto that Mary is the Tower of Ivory and Ark of the Covenant and, and various other uh, typological images. But our language is huge. And one of my favorite things is to help students begin to recover it. And I usually say, if we, if we can recover even 2% of the language during our course, we'll be doing a great job. So these, these things, you know, the church is so rich that so many of her riches fall out of focus, right? It's like a camera. 
And, you know, in one age, it focuses on this problem or, or this path to holiness. In another age, it, it changes a little bit of its focus. That doesn't mean the old stuff has gone away. It's, it's just as good as ever. Uh, it's just that we, we don't seem to have time to learn it enough. I was reading something in Dr. Jem Sullivan's book. The, I think it's The Beauty of the Word or something like that. Anyway, I'll look it up and put it in the show notes where she talks about how early Christian missionaries, uh, priests really, would find indigenous cultures and help them to use their own art and music to give praise to God. And they would teach them sacred music and all of that. But because it was so edifying to use what was beautiful and natural to the people to connect their worship with God, it made them more ardent in their worship. There's so many stories of beauty touching people's hearts and opening them to God. Right, and, and this is an example of how they had already brought forth from the imagination of their people things which were true, things which were part of the imitating of God. No, you know, as always, we, we mix the true and the false together, and the false has to be put aside, um, sometimes rather forcefully depending on, you know, the circumstances of how long it's been going on. But absolutely, every, every culture is, has been capable of bringing forth images that, to a greater or lesser degree, help them see some of the truth of the real God. And you don't want to throw those out. You don't want to condemn them as long as they can be purified. St. Augustine used to call that carrying gold from Egypt. You know, the whole of the liberal arts education is based on that idea that you take what is good from the pagan culture and, and leave the, the dross, the parts that aren't good, behind, just as the children of Israel were ordered to take the gold out of Egypt when they left. And of course, what do they do with it? First thing, they make a golden calf. <laughs> All right. That doesn't mean that the gold, you know, had to be thrown away completely. The gold was later used to make the Ark of the Covenant. Mm, beautiful. It's, it's all about how you use it. So this, this is a, a deep principle of the liberal arts education. And we can use it in typology. In Chartres, the great cathedral, there are many typological windows. You know, the, the normal typological window will take a couple of events, three, four, five, from the life of Christ, and, and they'll be sort of the center uh, glasses. And then over on the sides will be events from the Old Testament, especially, that are reflections of the same thing, right? An, an earlier version of what Christ did. So if, if Christ is raising Lazarus, perhaps over to the left might be um, Elijah uh, raising the widow's son. And maybe over on the, the right might be an image of St. Peter raising up his mother and mother-in-law. can't remember. Anyway, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but there is another... That's normal. That's, that's what everybody ought to be familiar with if their church has beautiful stained glass windows instead of things that look like they came out of Picasso. Hello. <laughs> but the, in, in Chartres, they also have 
a window with the 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 actions of Christ, and then on the side, the sufferings of Hercules, the twelve trials of Hercules, because our ancestors saw in those trials of the hero who then later is he's he's born as the son of Zeus to a to a mortal. Hera hates him and and makes his life a, a total wreckage at various times. But eventually, he comes through all of these trials and sufferings and is, is lifted up to heaven to, to live happily ever after. Well, they, they saw, oh, you know, these pagans are getting on to the right idea. You know, the true savior must suffer. It's not going to be, you know, the one who is the king or the emperor and, and just has it easy all the time. So this, this tradition was, you know, went on for hundreds of years and was eventually enshrined in these beautiful windows. That's amazing. When Dante writes about something in the Christian life, he almost always gives us an example from Holy Scripture and an example from pagan literature, whether it's the Aeneid, which he especially loves, or, or many other things. I mean, he was so widely educated, seemed to have known virtually everything that could be known in his age. So he's always doing this, back and forth, back and forth. And he stitches for us this fabulous tapestry of the image of God being expressed uh, in all times and places. You know, most perfectly, of course, in the Holy Scripture, especially that part of it which deals with the the life of Christ. But everywhere is God's kingdom. You're touching upon something that I think recurs just continuously in liberal academia, and that is, oh, Christianity is not original. All this stuff has been talked about and imaged in the past. And the answer to that then is to say, human beings have been sensing the presence of God and his story, this impending story, these types, these prefigurations throughout human history, which it more credibility. That's absolutely correct. I mean, the, the proper response is thank God. <laughs> uh, you know, they, there are two ways of looking at it. And the people who tried to tear down uh, Christianity in the academy, uh, with a lot of success, unfortunately, normally took the, the approach of, say, Sir James Fraser in the Golden Bough, um, or others, maybe e even Edith Hamilton in mythology of saying, well, here we can find six different versions of a story, and here that same story is, in, although with, you know, different facts involved, in the life of Christ. So what this shows is that the ancients invented it, and everybody started imitating it, and finally the Jews got around and imitated it too. <laughs> well, all right, that, that's one semi-plausible account. The other is that there actually is a singular truth in the universe, and everybody's been working on it with the wisdom and, and the, 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 you know, the moral clarity of their tribe or their nation, and they did the best they could. And this is what they came up with, and of course it resembles the fullness of truth. They, they're going to get part of it right, and thank God they do. You know, I think of the Aztecs, for example. 
with their hideous focus on human sacrifice, maybe 50,000 in it, you know, two or three days. But they got one thing right, that the worship of God has to focus on giving up what is most precious. And for them, the most precious thing was human life. And therefore, they gave that to their God. They just didn't know who the sacrifice ought to be and that it didn't need to be serial over and over and over and over again. Uh, but that the perfect sacrifice. They were indicating that limitation of their own humanity, that it's just never enough. Right. Absolutely. But they, that's, you know, they, they were thinking their way or feeling their way to a very deep and terrible truth that sacrifice is at the base of the universe. In kind of wrapping up this topic, because I feel like this topic is so rich, and obviously you delve into it in a great many courses at Homeschool Connections and in other places, the Catholic Shakespeare audio series and other places that, you know, you've been blessing us with your scholarship. Just I'm going to ask you for final comments, but also we can find you at Homeschool Connections, obviously. Is there anywhere else online that people can follow you, get to know your work better? You know, I don't do a lot online um, other than with Homeschool Connections. I've done a tremendous amount with them. There are a lot of different courses. Um, I do um, produce the Shakespeare audios, uh, the, the Catholic Shakespeare audio series, where I, in uh, a variety of CDs, I show how Shakespeare is himself a, um, a hidden Catholic uh, who is constantly commenting on the, the terrible plight of the church in the English police state under Elizabeth, and commenting, therefore, on the terrible plight of England herself, <laughs> trying to live without Holy Mother Church. And then we have the St. Augustine's website, and pretty soon I'm going to start putting up on there some, some written work that we'll make available. We'll put it in the show notes, Dr. Russell, so people can, can learn more about you and learn more about typology and, and many of the other just beautiful work that you do around literature and, and education. Thanks so much for spending the time with us today. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. I always love to talk about the faith and especially about how literature helps bring that faith forward to so many people. Mm, what a gift, too. And it seems like it was almost in peril of being completely lost, but I feel like the, the church is taking it up again in beautiful ways through people like you. Thank you so much, Dr. Thank you. Good to be with you. God bless you. Thank you so much. Uh, and everybody, just stay tuned for our short feature coming right up. Hello, my homeschooling friends. I'm Celeste Behe, and this is Story Strands. In an earlier segment, we talked about one of the most important differences between story reading and storytelling. That difference is eye contact. If you are reading a story out of a book, you can't look your child in the eye. And if you can't look your child in the eye, you are not storytelling. You might be doing any of a number of other good and valuable things to communicate, but you aren't storytelling. Now, at this point, you may be wondering, 
Why is eye contact vital to storytelling? Let's look at three reasons. Number one, storytelling allows the storyteller to speak directly to the listener and watch for listener reaction. As a parent, you need to look at your child while storytelling in order to gauge his attentiveness and interest, and also, if necessary, to modify your story accordingly. By the way, there'll be more on that in a future segment. And you know what? Your audience, that is your child, loves for you to look at him or her, too. Which brings us to our next point. Number two. Storytelling is a bonding exercise for you and your child. An old Scottish proverb says that storytelling is, quote, eye to eye, mind to mind, heart to heart. Storytelling creates a connection between the eyes, the minds, the hearts of the storytelling parent and the listening child. How can you tell? It's easy. Look at your child while you are telling a story. Is he mirroring your facial expressions so that his own face reflects the emotions that you are conveying through your story? Then he is truly an engaged listener. Again, eye to eye, mind to mind, heart to heart. Number three, storytelling involves more than the spoken word. A good storyteller will employ nonverbal communication to enhance a story. Now, you and I communicate nonverbally every day. The way that we look at a child who is behaving himself is not the way that we will look at a child who needs reprimanding, right? We speak with our eyes as well as our voices, and the eyes are often a more honest indicator of emotion. That is why it's said that the eyes are the mirror of the soul. And it's also why a parent who employs eye contact in storytelling can express more than a story reader can. So, listener reaction, parent-child bonding, and non-verbal communication. These are just three of the reasons to employ eye contact in your storytelling. I'm Celeste Behe, and this is Story Strands. That's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com, where you can get online courses for your grade school, middle school, and high school student. Learn from the experts and make your homeschooling easier. Be sure to leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. And we'll see you next time here on the Homeschooling Saints podcast.